You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. You're in the studio of Gangland Wire. I've got on the uh, Skype and in the studio by proxy our good friend Cam Robinson from uh, from up in, uh, what, what is the name of that town you live in? It's it's Munster. It's the first exit across the uh, across the, the the border from from Chicago. So it's it's I am in the I am in the suburbs of Chicago. I know people get people get testy about that. <laughs> yeah, I know that. And, and of course, you got to put up with all those crazy ass Illinois drivers. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> we, we went down this path before. <laughs> That's right. But heck, let's denigrate Chicago drivers for a while. Huh? We'll get some, I'll get some feedback right. on that one. Ben Ellickson's out there listening. Are you listening, Ben? <laughs> Red Matter, are you listening? He, he's not in Chicago anymore, but uh, Frank Calabrese, are you listening? <laughs> We're denigrating your driving skills up there in Chicago. <laughs> All right, anyhow, let's move moving right along. Uh, don't forget to hit me up on the Venmo app uh, once in a while. Buy me a shot and a beer, a cup of coffee. Uh, Cam came up with an idea. I, I really like your idea, and that was major mafia blunders and what happened. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff we're going to kind of assume you know some of the history of it. Uh, we'll start back in. Uh, you know, do this in kind of chronological order. I've got my mine. Will be the first one. Will be the killing. Yeah. Killing of the two Charlies. So you've got it. You so the notes you've had of mainly in chronological order. So let's uh, let's start back here. And this is 1951. Actually, mm-hmm. 1950, there was uh, two men killed, Charlie Benaggio and Charlie Gargata, who were mob guys here in Kansas City. They weren't the boss. Uh, by that point in time, it was Anthony Gizzo, I believe, and Nick Savella will soon become the boss. Uh, but what happened was this Charlie Benaggio had been a mob guy out of the 30s, and, and long-standing mob guy, and, and along with his partner, Charlie Gargata, and in 1944, he, he started, during the war, he wanted to get into politics. And because at that point in time, the main politics was all controlled by the Irish. Tom Pendergast was the boss. Like, Pendergast, uh, like, yeah. Like Daly was the boss in the Tammany Hall in, in New York City. All the big cities had a, had a boss, of course, and, and an organization. That's how Truman got in. Really, and, and we're going to get into that, just a, a touch on that a little bit. Benaggio formed the First Ward Democratic Club so he could organize everybody in what we called the North End or the Italian section. They had not really been organized uh, up until that point in time. And uh, the mob had, had really, uh, they just helped the Pendergast organizations, all they'd ever done. And the or- any organization they'd done down in among their own uh, compadres, uh, the newly arrived Italian immigrants and all the, uh, their, their children who are now voting and working and living in the city and, and kind of moving into the more dominant culture, uh, they had always been subservient to Pendergast, and they wanted to form their own political organization. He formed the First Ward politi- Political, or the First Ward Political Club, and 
he had an idea that he could open Kansas City back up. By this time, Tom, Tom Pendergast is out. A lot of the remnants of his organization are still have key jobs, but he was convicted of income tax evasion in 1939, I believe, and gone to the penitentiary. And, and the new broom swept clean in City Hall in Jackson County for a while, but it, it didn't stay, of course. They kind of went back to they'll seek its lowest common denominator, and there's still plenty of corruption to go around. Uh, and he, he uh, uh, wants to move in on this, and, and he's really tight with the governor at the time, a guy named Forrest Smith, who's run for re-election. And he's even, I found newspaper articles where he can go in and out of the governor's office because he had helped him get elected. <laughs> and, and, but the, the, the mob blunder here was trusting Gore, Forrest Smith. See, uh, Charlie Benaggio even approached Frank Costello and the National Crime Commission in New York City to get, they, it's reported anywhere from two or $300,000 up to a million dollars to fund this Forrest Smith's uh, election campaign. Uh, and in return, this, the governor was supposed to appoint mob-friendly police boards in St. Louis and Kansas City. And, and at that point in time, and it's still that way in, this way in Kansas City, the governor appoints the members of the police board, and the police board set the policy. So uh, he, he, he promised to appoint these mob-friendly people uh, to the police boards, and Benaggio's selling his pitch to get this money, to get this man elected, was that when he got those... Uh, friendly police boards in, then they were going to open up the city to gambling, primarily because, you know, narc uh, uh, and some narcotics. They were still doing narcotics, but primarily gambling and, and prohibition was over, right? And, right, and that right. stream of money is gone. So they got to get into gambling's the next stream of money. That uh, gambling. Know, you know, history tells us that they got into gambling big time on a national basis and started with the race wires and, and some sports gambling, primarily the race wires back in this day. Uh, were huge. Everybody wanted to bet on the horse races, and we didn't have even a track in Kansas City. So, you know, you could bet on races all over the United States if you, went, you had a connection to the wire room. Uh, and then we had a wire room, and they were making money, but they wanted to make more, and they wanted to open up the city, you know, not only the the wire rooms, but, you know, uh, car, like little casinos. They formed little casinos, and uh, they had several of them around them, and they had to stay on the down low because the police would still raid them once in a while. Uh, and the liquor interest and prostitution. They wanted to have an open city again, like it was during the 30s. Uh, mm -hmm. And this guy, uh, uh, they, their blunder was trusting this guy because he, did, he refused to then appoint these mob-friendly uh, people to the police board. And pretty soon it was obvious that these cities were not going to open back up. It was going to continue to be business as usual, uh, not a wide open city. And, and the next thing, uh, Benaggio and, and his, uh, uh, what was called his underboss, more like his kind of his uh, mob protector, who was really a notorious enforcer, a guy called uh, Charles Mad Dog Gargata, were called to a meeting at the First Ward Democratic Club, which there's some symbolism in that, isn't there? And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, we, I was discussing this recently with somebody. Uh, Benaggio and Gargata were at this joint which was this famous joint in Kansas City called The Last Chance and was on state line. So if, if the Chicago, I mean the Chicago, if the Missouri cops came in, the Kansas City cops came in, they had gambling tables, they pushed everything over to the Kansas side. Cross the line. Vice versa, if Kansas cops came in, they'd push everything over into Missouri. And, <laughs> and so, 
he left uh, Bernaggio's regular driver, uh, a guy named Nick Pena, down at the club, said they had to go to a meeting that he, they didn't want him to go to. But he did take uh, uh, Gargata. There's some supposition that maybe Gargata set him up, but, but both of them were killed. And, and what's interesting is, and what really uh, created the, the, the huge repercussion from this hit, uh, along with the fact that it started coming out that, that he was hit because he got a governor elected and then the governor didn't do what he wanted, uh, was, was a famous picture was taken with That's right. wide of uh, Gargata laying on the floor in a pool of blood, and there's a big portrait of Harry Truman smiling down over him. And so he, yeah. had, just been, he had just gotten elected in the 1948 election. There was already, uh, that's a famous one where he holds up the paper, says, you know, Tri Dewey beats Truman, but he actually beat Tom Dewey. And, and, and another yeah. more interesting little tidbit of that is Tom Dewey was a notorious mob buster from New York City that put Lucky Luciano in, in the penitentiary. Yep. And, and Harry Truman is a small-time politician from Kansas City, Missouri, that had been in the Pendergast organization uh, all along. So, I mean, there wasn't hardly anybody clean back then because there's a lot of, of uh, uh, there's some evidence that Dewey was also taking payoffs from uh, from Luciano to uh, fund his political uh, uh, political career so you know there, there's no innocent parties here if if you think about it that hit in and of itself was kind of a uh was kind of a big they, they kind of screwed the pooch on that because that was one of the precipitating events for the uh the the Kefauver hearing if i right, if i right. remember correctly harry truman harry truman after his picture gets appeared and he gets connected to these mobsters in kansas city there's a lot of pressure on him to show that he's not connected there was other there were other uh, rumors around that Chicago Outfit had pressured, uh, all their political connections had pressured people and made sure that Chicago went for Harry Truman in the 1948 election. So he had all this to, to try to show that he was not, you know, owned by the mob. He then commissioned this uh, Kefauver Commission, which then went throughout the United States, uh, you know, had a national impact. And was our first, you know, before Appalachia or Appalachian, it was our mm -hmm. first real view of these mobsters and what they looked like and how they talked yeah. and, and uh, you know there was a lot of and you know the the taking the Fifth Amendment and there's a, some interesting transcripts of that they're kind of tedious to go through but it really tells the story of the mob if uh, J Edgar Hoover kind of ignored the Kefauver Commission but later on they'll use that what they learned in the Kefauver Commission against the mob for years and years and years after this. So that was the uh, that was the unintended consequences of the killing of the two Charlies. So why don't we move on to uh, what your first was uh, the blinding of of uh, Victor Riesel, nineteen fifty six. Yeah, uh, Victor Riesel. That's just my terrible oh, oh, spelling, Gary. Okay. That's, uh, <laughs> that's just that's my fat fingers not typing properly. Uh, All right, so uh, tell the wire Victor Riesel was a uh, a journalist. He was he was a uh, a big anti-communist, which endeared him to the the uh, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, FBI. Hoover at that time was fighting communists, not the mafia. Riesel was really against corruption in the labor unions, and he especially had a bone to pick with uh, Jimmy Hoffa. At that time, Hoffa was working with a guy named Johnny Diagardi, Johnny Dio, in New York. And Johnny Dio had a lot of, of what they would call scab shops uh, running, trucking up in New York. And he had the support of Jimmy Hoffa so he could avoid any union problems. And Riesel, 
was about to testify to a U.S. Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor, and he was giving a lot of a lot of really well publicized uh, uh, press and doing a lot of of radio interviews to the effect that that there was a great deal of corruption and he was using a lot of names. Hoffa was was fuming. You know, we we've all seen that the Hoffa how his temper is, and and so he spoke to a bunch of his his mob buddies, and I think it was along the lines of the uh, you know, will will nobody uh, rid me of this uh, troublesome priest type situation. So Johnny Dio, who was pretty high up, he had some local thugs take a jar full of acid. And as Riesel was leaving one of these radio interviews, they threw a jar full of acid in his face, blinding him. And there's pictures of him now with the, the gauze on his eyes, and he, he was blind. What that led to was huge public outcry against this, because journalists were pretty much off limits. The, the only prior to that, Capone had killed a, a journalist, but it turned out the guy was on the take. So that guy, it, 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 it wasn't seen as a big deal. The journalists were considered protected. This blinding of Victor Riesel, who was clearly being attacked for, for his outspoken uh, criticism, is what really, really sparked the creation of the McClellan Committee, which was, you know, I, I, I had misspoke earlier, but that was on improper activities in labor, which is where we first encounter Robert Kennedy, who was the chief counsel under, under McClellan. That is where, because of this acid attack, this is where Robert Kennedy begins his investigation into the mafia. Where he also he knew Huffa was connected to it, and it's probably where he formed that. Absolutely, he had an extreme, yeah. extreme dislike. Uh, There's those famous interviews of, of Huffa. Of course, Bobby Kennedy, he was he was a ballbuster anyhow in his interviews. The whole thing with Sam Giancana said, "Oh, you you giggle like a little girl." I'm thinking, oh, "Little my girl God, of a schoolyard taunt right here on the TV." <laughs> 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 and that, yeah, those those hearings are where you see Bobby Kennedy and and Hoffa really going at it. Uh, the first of many interchanges, but that was what really set them off. Interesting, interesting. So now that's 1956, and and of course, shortly thereafter, another another huge mob blunder would be holding that uh, Appalachian meeting up at oh. uh, Barbara's place on uh, in upstate New York. That was, I, I don't know. I guess they'd done it before, but. And they may not have known, but that state trooper, Sergeant Cresswell, he was on to that uh, uh, Joseph Barbara. Uh, he, he had already been investigating him and had paid some attention mm -hmm. to him. But I guess they probably so arrogant, they thought, well, you know, nobody, these little, little hick cops up here are not going to do anything. Uh, we'll just, uh, we'll have this big, make this big splash. I mean, I come from a small town in a country like that. And, you don't have, you know, that many people come in from out of town without everybody knowing right. about it and paying attention to it. But anyhow, I think Galante had uh, just been busted uh, several months before. He had been busted and 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 put in jail for a while. And uh, Galante was a pretty big heavy hitter back then. Everybody would have known that he was he was in jail. And that's it. Like you said, in a little town like that, that's what what puts everybody on the radar. Plus, with that many inviting that many people to one central location, one of the somebody yeah. in the other cities are gonna their informants are gonna say, hey, you know. Our guys just went back to New York to do something. What's up with yeah. that? So it's uh, uh, it was a pretty bold thing. Uh, they, it would have been a lot better, a lot more skillful to have it in a big city 
where people oh. come. Giancana was fuming. Was he really over, over the deal? And, and of course, yeah. uh, you know, local police discover it. And, you know, kind of the rest is history, uh, wouldn't you say? No, they could have had it on Michigan Avenue in Chicago the way they had this city tied <laughs> And that thing, somehow that made the international news even I, I see you have down here. Yeah. Uh, I, I saw some French newspapers that had uh, that 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 had some some mention of it. It was a it was a big damn deal. And, and you know it also led you know, to as uh, our friend Bill Owsley said, it basically led to for, forming the uh, getting J Edgar Hoover to form the Top Hoodlum program. And, that's right. You know, entire United States, which really was the beginning of the end. Yeah. The, and and those guys, uh, I see that you make mention here, and it's true, they planted illegal wiretaps and the bugs and stuff all over the country. They never were going to use it in court, but there was no real law against it. In 19, wasn't, there, yeah. wasn't there really a law against that until 1968? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there was much against it. And I've heard some Senate testimony by, by Robert Blakely, who came out with the, uh, the RICO Act, talking about, well... You know, maybe maybe it's not all above board, but hell, we've got it now. Let's just go ahead and use it. And he was a constitutional scholar. Yeah. <laughs> He's talking about, well, shit, we got it now. Yeah, you got it now. They've used it to <laughs> great effect since. I don't know how it goes now with all the modern-day technology, but I'm sure they, they're still doing all kinds of electronic, what we call technical surveillance, doing all kinds of technical surveillance just in different ways. Got up to 1957. I, I see you got down here the support of JFK by the uh, outfit. That's kind of an interesting thing and a much discussed. Uh, uh, you know, we lead right into the uh, assassination of JFK out, out of that. Yeah, I put it in. You know, we've got it in italics because it's it's still it's one of those things that it's sort of known, but it's it's not necessarily verified. I think that that there are a lot a lot of sources that say. Yeah, Giancana did, with the help of Frank Sinatra, really did want to support, uh, want to support Kennedy, and I know that I know it's in the Irishman, but uh, uh, Gus Russo, who's a famous journalist, he has uh, a few chapters in in a couple of his books about it. Uh, Curly Humphreys, who was sort of the the brains behind the outfit, was was very much against it. He had had some some negative dealings with old Joe Kennedy. But he said we we can't trust these guys. It, you just you can't trust them. And of course, Hoffa was against it. But the story goes that the outfit thought that they could they they would trust the Kennedys. The Kennedys would eventually help get back uh, Cuba, and that they would basically step back after after Appalachian and and give them their space. So and, was the 1960 election this that close? It says Kennedy was elected by 300,000 votes. Yeah, it was, was it was it was really wow. close. As I as I recall, that was the that was the uh, that was the margin. It was it was one of the closest. I, it may have been the closest in 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 history. I think if if Nixon looked a little prettier on TV, <laughs> it's it's hard to attribute something to a single source uh, on that on right. votes like that. But if you think about, it, I mean. Chicago, they're going to influence Kansas City and Milwaukee and probably Cleveland and some of the other Midwest cities and maybe even uh, back east if, if they push hard for Kennedy uh, to get elected president. So they're going to have some effect. But then on the other hand, Kennedy was a Democrat. And, and yeah. uh, the unions at that point in time, the unions all went Democrat and the mob was in bed with the unions. And, 
And so it was kind of a natural thing for, you know, that subculture, the mob or the unions or the local political clubs were Democrat. You know, the, the daily machine up there was, was Democrat. The machine in Kansas City was Democrat. Uh, you know, Democrats have flip-flopped with the yeah. Republicans now, but it was Democratic then. And, and so, you know, who knows what it is. But, uh, but anyhow, uh, the rest is history, isn't it? Kennedy was elected, and Bobby, Bobby Kennedy became the attorney general, and he went back after us. That's what, that's what he went back after <laughs> our friend Sam Giancana. That's right. That's right. It, uh, it did not work. It, it, true or not, Kennedy's election did not work out. Well, here's a really interesting one. I remember doing, reading this a uh, long time ago. Uh, uh, the murder of Albert Schuster. Now, most of you guys out there, you don't know who Albert Schuster is, and I wouldn't know the name if you just said it, but you may remember right. about this circumstance. I had to look it up. Uh, tell, tell us about that, Cam. That's a really interesting story. Schuster was, a, was uh, just a regular kind of guy. He was a young guy, 23, and he was sort of a, uh, an amateur sleuth, but he was walking down the street in New York getting ready to get on a bus, and he sees this guy. There had just been a major robbery. A guy named uh, uh, Willie, the actor Sutton, who was really well known and had been for a long time. If you read about the old old robbers and going back in the day, Willie Sutton was was going back in into the the 30s, if I'm remembering correctly. He had just uh, a robbery of of sixty three thousand dollars worth of jewelry, so his face was all over. Uh, Schuster sees him on the street. And then he passes two cops. He thinks, there's no way that's Willie Sutton. And he passes two cops and he says, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I, I swear I just saw Willie Sutton. And the cops, the cops go after the street. Uh, Schuster get, gives him his name, gets on the bus, and that's that. Turns out it was Sutton. They arrested him and they follow up with Schuster and say, good job, you got him. He gets a little $750 reward. He gives a couple television interviews and a month later, he is shot to death on the street. And they they think, oh, maybe Sutton had something to do with it. But Sutton actually offered ten. Would he said that he would offer a ten thousand dollar reward? The police said, I don't know that the optics are too good on that. So it it came out. So it so it, it basically Sutton wanted to clear himself. Yeah. By offering it correct, correct. Okay, I got you. Correct. Uh, yeah, that that wasn't clear. Yes. So and and it just they didn't think it would look too good. So uh, after that, Schuster's family wouldn't give any more reward, any more interviews. They said the press has cost us enough, and it, it sort of died out. It, it looked like it, like not much would, good could come of 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 helping people out. But then when fast forward to 1962, when Joseph Valachi uh, begins testifying. And he comes out and says, yeah, that, that Schuster guy, that was Albert Anastasia. And he said, I hate, I hate a rat, and he, ki he killed him based on those television interviews. He saw this guy that, that just didn't know Willie Sutton, didn't know him from anywhere, but Albert Anastasia hated a rat, and so he sent people to kill this Schuster. And it really sent chills up the spines of the public to think that... that that this regular guy, who's just doing the right thing, not mobbed up, no connections, could be that 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 the mob would reach out and kill a citizen. It really changed the minds of a lot of people who thought, well, they just kill themselves, they leave us alone, and and a lot of lot of people changed their opinion of what the mob was capable of when they're killing civilians who are really just doing the right thing and, and turning on a guy who had nothing to do with the mob. Yeah, and they really, it they was, really, it was the real mob small. depends on 
certain support among yeah. people, just your regular John Doe citizen. They depend on a certain yeah. support. And, they, and if they don't get that, and if the John Doe citizen turns on them, then all of a sudden uh, the uh, local police and, and the, and the uh, local county attorney will turn on them big time, whereas maybe they haven't been before because everybody likes that and something fell off a truck. <clears throat> everybody likes, a, a, yeah. you know, a, an illegal drink. Everybody likes to gamble. Uh, Mm -hmm. part. So, so yeah, that's uh, you know, another thing is I could imagine his uh, his fellow mobsters were not too happy with him. Like, it would make me Luciano said that. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luciano said that was that was one of the first things that tipped them off that Anastasia uh, he wasn't all there. That was I, I think that he took over in fifty or fifty one is when he killed uh, Magano. Luciano said in his in his biography years later that was the beginning of the end for Anastasia. Everybody kind of turned on him after that and, and realized he was somebody that they couldn't trust. Interesting. So let's go on into the 70s now. And then here's the most famous one here lately. You guys are probably tired of us beating this case to death. We beat this sucker. Everybody's beating this thing to death, Cam, on the mob That's Facebook right. pages. Everybody's beating the, the Irishman to death. I, th I, think, uh, I think when... Uh, Scorsese decided to do that book. He knew that the controversy would would build into a, like a, a a perfect storm. I hate the use of that word. Yeah. Build into a, a, a real frenzy. Frenzy of back and forth, which you know, no bad publicity. I wish they were arguing about absolutely my movie, brothers against brothers out there about that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, uh, the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa, which, you know, I mean, I understand, I get it that Hoffa wanted to get back, get the Teamsters back and they own the Teamsters. As you pointed out, they own Frank Fitzsimmons and he didn't care much about running the union. He liked to play golf and just be a good old boy. They had Alan Dorfman in there, was handling all the money, and, and they had complete run of the Central States Teamster Pension Fund. Complete run of it, and Hoffman started that. He did that back when he was there. Mm -hmm. But as that, you know, I've got that famous wiretap of Joey Lombardo threatening Morris Schenker, uh, who's yep. a St. Louis lawyer who had borrowed some money from the pension fund, and Alan Dorfman felt like he should be getting a kick on that, and, and Schenker wasn't arranging for him to get a kickback on that loan that he had gotten, but, but Schenker had done that with Hoffa. And so when Lombardo's saying, you know, you need to pay, you owe this guy some money, you need to pay him, you need to take care of him, and he said, you know, I didn't deal with you guys, I dealt with Hoffa. And Hoffa said, he, he didn't tell me you guys were going in on this, I didn't know that. And, and, you know, proceed mm -hmm. to tell him, you know, if you want to live to be 73, then you're going to do right by Alan Dorfman. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, that Jimmy, Jimmy wanted to come back and take that over, and he was not going to let them do what they wanted to do like they did before. That's right. Because they, they owned that thing. So uh, that's, that, yeah. that was, uh, uh, what, what, what was the result of this, do you think? Uh, once Hoffa well, was disappeared and hit the news so big, what happened? It really showed, it really exposed the corruption that I think a lot of people were, were kind of peripherally aware of. But once, once I got, because Jimmy Hoffa, I think now it's hard to put him in the context. Of course, the Irishman talks about how big Hoffa was, but I guess unless you were sort of around at the time, and, and I wasn't, but, but I've, I've done, you know, my reading and things just enough to, to, to contextualize it. Hoffa was huge. He was, he was big. I was watching an interview with him on, uh, on uh, uh, 
hell, I can't remember his name, one of the big 70s interview guys. He was big. He was all over television. He was, everybody was interviewing him. When he disappeared, that was national news. And there was only, I mean, there was only one group who could be responsible. And that really showed the degree of the corruption in the Teamsters. And so that directed a lot of, a lot of, uh, investigation at them. I think the government focused on them maybe a little bit more than they already were. The public really sort of changed their opinion of them. In the wake of him, and you can speak to this being from Kansas City, there were a lot of really weak leaders. You know, when they got rid of Hoffa to begin with, you had Fitzsimmons, and then you had, had Roy Williams, then you had Presser, and those guys didn't have the, the charisma that, that Hoffa did. And so uh, shortly thereafter in 77... They lost control of central state's pension. They didn't have somebody like Hoffa who might have been able to fight that off. And he, he wasn't as generous with it as, as Alan Dorfman and Fitzsimmons, who were just, just giving the money away. Uh, Hoffa, being a little bit more tight-fisted, probably could have kept control of it because he, he could say no to the mob. Then in 79, you had the deregulation where uh, the, the government basically cut the knees out from under the unions by allowing all these non-union shops. They, they deregulated the trucking industry, so which I think, again, is something Hoffa would have, would have fought tooth and nail against. So you had 200, 300 trucking firms that immediately went out of business because you, you suddenly have all these non-union shops where, where these guys will, will work for a, a much lower wage and they'll work longer hours. Whatever the union pushed for, these guys would, would do it for, for less money. And, and Cam, was that would that be when they first started those owner operators? You know, at one point in time, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, uh, yeah, uh, that was a yeah. kind of a sought after job. You could you, you absolutely financed and buy your own tr truck, and they would uh, uh, supply the trailer and, and the loads. And and I know guys that do that yeah. to this day, and they deadhead. They don't ever deadhead. They just go from one city to the other to the other, and then finally come back yeah. home. But you can make a decent living doing that and, and yeah. that back in the 50s and 60s i don't think they had those owner operators i don't remember no no not with with that union control so there you've got the mob losing the pension you've got the mob losing a lot of that control of of you know the, the unions lose half the control of the trucking industry that's that's the mobs losing control of it also because it, it's a lot harder to control a single guy like you said who's trucking versus an entire organization where you've got the union if you own the local uh, a few years later, in 1991, the Teamster leadership, the general presidency, went to general election. You know, it, it used to be you were in the the president was was nominated by the delegates. The mob basically and the delegates, you know, they all got together and and agreed, we'll we'll give this one to Kansas City with Roy Lee Williams. And then a couple years later, everybody got together and agreed, well, we'll give this to Cleveland and let them have Jackie Presser. And then a few years later, we'll give it to Boston, let them have McCarthy. And it was divvied up by, by the mob. Yeah, El, El, Provenzano was a damn delegate. Yeah. So once they lost control of the delegates and it became a general election, the mob just lost basically all control of the Teamsters. So all this in the wake of Hoffa, losing the pension, losing the control of, of the trucking firms when, they, when it was deregulated, and then losing control of the general election was or that was that was where they the mob totally lost control of the trucking industry and i think it can all basically be directed to the disappearance of hoffa when the government really began shining a light 
on the Teamsters and the trucking industry to begin with. Yeah, and then in addition to that, you know, talk about uh, unintended consequences. If they, they would have been better off just to make a deal with Hoffa and, and dealt with him because they could have uh, dealt with him. They yeah. could have. They could have, but yeah. they wouldn't do it. I think some personal feelings got in, in the way there, maybe this Tony Pro, but uh, be that as it may, at the same time, another unintended consequences here in Kansas City was uh, this little mob war in Kansas City. We started off with this entertainment district called the River Key, and if you watch my movie Gangland Wire, you'll, you'll mm-hmm. know, know all about this, but there's a couple of, uh, of Nick Savella's guys, Nick's our boss, and a couple of his guys, Willie and Joe Camasano, who are, have a crew, uh, they're brothers who have a crew of thieves that work for them, and and one of their one of Willie's guys uh, was a guy named David Bonadon, and his son had a restaurant and a bar in a new hopping entertainment district, and and he was uh, he had leased parking lots from the city that he could use at night for a real low price, and he was selling you know cash getting cash money for parking on the weekends at these places he's making several grand every weekend in 1974 75 which is a lot of money hell of a lot and they wanted a piece of that and freddie wouldn't do it and at the same time there were some other events happened and some mob guys were wanting to put bars down in this new entertainment district called the river key and and freddie uh bonadonna who was the son of the willie's Camasado's uh, uh crew member also went to liquor control and was ratting out any of the bar owners who were straw owners that were really owned by mob guys uh, you know, on a secret but on the down low but it came out and they they knew he's doing that and they went to his dad david and said you know you gotta freddie's got to get on our side he's got to help these guys get liquor licenses down there he's got to uh, uh give us some of that money and they felt like they owned him like they owned his dad. And, and he had not really been part of their thing. He was a Square John guy and had been a bar owner, but he was more of a Square John mm-hmm. guy. You know, he, uh, uh, he refused. And, and uh, Willie told his dad, he said, you know, he said he could get hurt. And then his dad says, you know, if, if you hurt my son, you're going to have to hurt me first. So he did. He killed the dad. Then there was a retaliation for that that we're not too sure if Freddie, one of Freddie's friends did it. I don't know if Freddie ordered it or not because he didn't really have a history of that, but, but there's retaliation for that. And, and then there was a couple other retaliations and, and there was a whole other mob uh, group, the young, young Turks that were wanting to move in on the Savellas and they saw this, uh, this chaos going on and they tried to move in and, and there's a couple of murders there. And, and, uh, and as a result of all those murders, the FBI says, hey, we gotta, we got to do something. And we got this one place. They got an informant that's pretty highly placed with the Savellas. So they know that uh, there's this one joint, the Villa Capri, where they put a hidden microphone because these guys talk business at this one table. They kind of set a pattern. It was a, uh, don't ever set a pattern of talking business in the same place, Cam. <laughs> Remember that. Abs- absolutely. Uh, all, That's the grocery store in the movie in, Casino. In the movie, it's, in the movie it's, Casino yeah. it was a grocery store. Actually, it was the uh, Villa Capri, which is a small pizza place and, and restaurant, which had been over northeast for a long time, all owned and operated by a bookie and an associate of the Savellas, and they felt safe there. So they put the microphone in there, and they started hearing them talking about Teamsters and money and millions of dollars and telling the guy he needs to sell a casino and and dropping some names that, you know, Lefty, real easy for him to call out to Las Vegas and say, you know, who's Lefty in the casino business that's connected to the mob? You know, the FBI is out there <laughs> Lefty Rosenthal. Everybody knows him. 
Probably should have called him writing. Right. And so that set in motion all the uh, wiretaps that ended up, you know, exposing the whole way that the mob worked with the Central States Teamsters Pension Fund. That they would, they they Mm. these guys in different cities. You know, Roy Williams was uh, the uh, top union official for the Teamsters in Kansas City. Jackie Presser was in Cleveland, and uh, a guy named uh, Robert Rainey was up in Milwaukee, and Alan Dorfman in uh, Chicago. And that cabal of people could then influence the Teamsters Pension Fund to loan money to somebody that they chose, and they chose a guy who then knew that he had to kick back, and the way they kicked back was they would uh, allow people to come in the casino and skim money. he acted like he didn't know, and he wasn't really cooperating at first. And and this is how it works: is uh, he Lefty Rosenthal got the owner, the straw owner of the Stardust, to fly back to Kansas City and meet with Nick Savella. And Nick Savella tells him, he said, "I'd rather you didn't leave this hotel room alive, but you know we can we can deal with this. That you owe me over a million dollars." And he said, "I don't know how I'm supposed to pay you that back." And he said, "You know, you don't worry about that. You've got a man working for you right here, Lefty Rosenthal." And just let him do what he needs to do. And so he was, you know, he was in the Stardust setting up the skim and running the Stardust. And for Chicago, you know, Chicago had them do that. Chicago didn't do that themselves. They had Kansas City straighten out that casino owner. And then when they wanted to get rid mm-hmm. of him, they had Kansas City get rid of him. And so when that all came to light, that, that the way the Teamsters Pension Fund financed this mob casino in, in, in real clear terms with wiretap testimony and, and uh, informants and, and people turned that were involved in the deal then, you know, that's another uh, nail in the coffin of the Teamsters that helped them by, when was this, 1977, they, uh, uh, by 79 or 80, they also, the Teamsters Union was put into a trusteeship and they and yeah. they fired all the elected officials at that point in time. That's probably when they went to the eventually they went to the general elections, but they put in Kansas City. Yeah, that you know what I forgot about the receivership. In, in yeah. In Kansas City they uh, had a local banker who was kind of a politician and a banker and he was the he was kind of the trustee when they were in receivership for Kansas City. So then we start seeing this one mob guy named Jimmy Duarte cuz Camasanos or or Savellas or anybody close to them would not be seen within a mile of him. But Jimmy Duarte, who was not that close to him, but was a made guy, he starts showing up at this guy's office periodically, just chatting him up. Now, the guy thought he was a player and thought he could handle all this, and, and he never told anybody what those conversations were about. But I, I'm pretty sure Jimmy Duarte wasn't there just to chat him up. I, I think they were trying to see <laughs> see how much, if they could get some control of him, because that Teamsters Union was... It was uh, the goose that laid the golden egg, and they were losing it as a result of starting off with the murder of James Riddle Hoffa and then getting caught in the skim, this unintended consequence of, of you know, trying to move in on this young guy down here that had a, a, uh, a going Jesse restaurant. So it's uh, lots of unintended consequences and blunders that these mob guys have made. You know, it's interesting that during that, while that skim was going on, you had two of the cities involved that had their own little mob wars going on. You had Kansas City with the River Key and the and the uh, the Spiro brothers. It was Dick Cavett that had the, right. the Jimmy Hoffa interview. That. I just yeah. I just remembered it. Yeah, folks, folks, but you had you want to see a really interesting uh, uh, interview of Jimmy Hoffa, the Dick Cavett. Just go to YouTube and and search for Dick Cavett and Jimmy Hoffa. It's a really great interview. 
hell of a good interview. But you had Kansas City with the, the Spiros and the River Key, but then he also had Cleveland with Danny Green and uh, and uh, John Nardi taking on uh, uh, taking on uh, uh, Jack White. Uh, so, so you had uh, you had guy who had just died. And, yeah, uh, I right. Know, I can't remember his first name. And then Scalish and yeah, they and they. Milton Rockman was uh, kind of the yeah. guy who was really high up in it. He was a, he was a connect to uh, drive to Chicago and pick up the pension. Uh, I mean, pick up the skim money and take it back to uh, Cleveland. And Angelo Leonardo was a uh, kind of a short short lived boss during that time too. They had a real upheaval in Cleveland during that time. So you wonder if maybe they got sloppy or, or, or lazy because they, they were getting this, this pension money. I don't know, but it's, it's just kind of a, because there were mob wars all over. But, but for, for two of those places at the same time to be having the same, same issues, and then both of, them, both of them getting sloppy enough that they got a lot of, Cleveland more so, but they got a lot of attention. How, now, when you were, when that was all going on, it had to be getting a lot of public attention. What was the what was the mood like in the in the in the department? What what kind of pressure were y'all getting? Oh, we were they were under heavy pressure. There's even a, a headline that says Karen, our, our chief of police was his last name was Karen, C A R O N. Said Karen vows to fight underworld, and you know they put they put a lot of heat on the intelligence unit, of course, to do that. They formed another. Uh, uh, special investigations division that kind of worked more on intermediate level criminals out of all that because they really showed hierarchy that you know you can do something about these guys and if you just have to try and of course the FBI has uh, got a ton of I mean you can't believe you talk about putting resources in or into a problem in Kansas City they they transferred agents in from all over the United States they must have doubled the size of the uh, organized crime squad uh, it was amazing. I remember these guys had come in from San Francisco and be just giddy about how big a house they could buy after they sold their house out in San Francisco. <laughs> they were buying these mansions what they thought right. in Kansas City. <laughs> but you know, just a ton of resources. So our whole unit, practically, except for a couple of guys, you know, went into all doing all the surveillance and worked hand in glove with the FBI and. And the Barton Department created this other special investigations division to start to actually work actively making cases on these mid-level criminals. They didn't really try to take on the, the upper echelon of the mafia, but they started working on the people in between. Which again, in, right. in the movie Brothers Against Brothers, we, I work with some of those guys uh, on, the, on this mm -hmm. upstart faction that we had in Kansas City. So that's, uh, that's, that's what happened in Kansas City. It probably happened in, in other cities. I don't really, I don't really know. Lot of, mm -hmm. With all those headlines, you get a lot of action. You get, you get, but the yeah. budget gets loosened up too. You get some better cars, and <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine they did uh, lean on y'all pretty heavy after that. Okay, well, I think we've, I think we've done this, Cam. I appreciate your idea on this. Uh, major mafia blunders and uh, the law of unintended consequences. It, it happens to everybody. Absolutely. So if you have a problem with drugs or alcohol, make your first call to First Call. Call 816-361-5900 or go to their website, www.firstcallkc.org. Speaking of websites, you know I have a website, www.ganglandwire.com. Uh, all the episodes are on there. If you subscribe to it, you'll get an email immediately when the episode goes out or that next day sometime and uh, there's my stores on there speaking of my store of course um, I didn't commercialize very much early on and 
uh, you know, I got my Brothers Against Brothers. If you make a $25 contribution, I'll send you either uh, Brothers Against Brothers or my original movie, Gangland Wire, or uh, uh, on a Kindle copy of my book, I can send you a, a, a gift certificate to download that, or I can send you the hard copy if you want. Uh, whichever you want, just let me know. And I've gotten a lot of support here lately. Seems like his uh, podcast is building up. Cameron, I, I, I mm-hmm. attribute some of that to you. <laughs> well, I, I, I have a hell of a good so time with it, Gary. Uh, I appreciate what you've done. Uh, people like uh, how you, uh, your research you've done and, and uh, how you describe things. And, and then, of course, you got me to come in and fumble around through. This is, this is how it really was. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so I, I appreciate, appreciate you, Cam, and... I think I don't have any more. Oh, I got my Kansas City Mob Tour app. It's only out there on uh, uh, the iTunes store. Uh, but that's a good way for you to take a mob tour of Kansas City uh, for a, a low price. You don't even have to be here because I've got you know, got maps. You can see the areas of the city that I'm talking about. And, of course, you've got Google Maps. You can go to the street view and see what it looks like now if you want. And you can, uh, I've got pictures of maybe what it looked like back then. Some of them are pictures of today and a little bit of text about what happened there. So uh, I appreciate your help, Cam, and uh, Wiretappers, I appreciate all you guys out there. Uh, Just keep tuning in. Thanks, Cam. Thanks, here. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.